Are you ready to experience something extraordinary? Cultural gems in Croatia, ancient temples in Asia, art in Italy. We'll take care of everything. Flights, accommodation, excursions, local guides and all that planning. Travel department, let's see more. I'm Gary Cook, and you are listening to Lions Legends. Now, our guest today, he was one of Ireland's finest and most free-scoring wingers. In fact, he got nine international tries. He represented Ulster and also Ireland with distinction between 1981 and 1988, earning him 31 caps. His class as an international saw him selected for the British and Irish Lions Tour of New Zealand in 1983. Since retiring from rugby, he has worked as a solicitor, a politician, and is heavily involved in providing inter-religious unity through sport. MBE Trevor Ringland, you are very welcome. Thanks very much, Gary. Great to have you. Trevor, it's almost 40 years to the day since you were touring with the Lions in New Zealand. Yeah, that's right. Um, 1983, a 10-week ten tour and, and an incredible experience and so much fun and also uh, a very uh, tremendous rugby experience as well. Now, that, that tour uh, itself, say back in 1983, by that stage, obviously Lions tours were uh, well-established uh, sort of in the media as well as, as the actual tours uh, themselves and it was a huge deal um but to put it into perspective like nowadays they have say i don't know how many coaches 40 at the last count um right. and that didn't include psychologists uh, so in your time uh, trevor how many people went on that tour well there was 30 players and there was the manager which was um willie john mcbride and the coach that was jim telford and our Jim Telfer, and then there was uh, a doctor and a physio, and we got a bag man when we got out there, and that was it. And then if some guys got injured, which some did, unfortunately, then other guys joined us. But um, and we played twice a week, one game on the Saturday, and then one game midweek. And it was a ten-week tour. We did, I think, eighteen matches in total, and a tremendous experience. Every place that you went to, every province you went to, wanted to make sure you had your best time in the tour off the pitch um while they all well at the same time when you went to new zealand you suddenly find that the whole country was against you um when you're on the pitch uh so so tremendous place most beautiful country and i i do intend to go back at some stage with my wife and uh and also a great rugby experience nice people uh very friendly off the pitch i always remember every every province which we played against uh, the president would stand up afterwards and welcome us to New Zealand, welcome us to his province, and then say, um, well done today, uh, good luck in your next match. And then he would add, but we hope you lose. And people here would always leave the last bit out, but New Zealand, they throw that in too. So, great fun. Yeah, I get the feeling it's uh, it, it really is the making of you um, uh, when you go and play in one of those matches. Um, you played in four uh, you played in four tests. Now, I know the tour was the Wednesday matches yeah. were, and quite a few of the Saturday matches you won were successful. But the, the tests, although three of them were quite close, one of them wasn't, it was you were you were nonetheless beaten 4 0. Um, I mean, what yeah. was the kind of what's your memory of those games? Because this, I know the last one was a bit of a, a, a whitewash, but the rest of them weren't. Yeah, I, I played in the first test, um, and uh, and we actually should have won that test. And I remember very short of the line um, that Bob Ackerman, and if he just passed it on, I was clear, I was over the line, I would have scored. And I, and in some ways, uh, unfortunately, that didn't happen. And in a very close match, which we should have won, we ended up losing. And I think if we'd won that game, it would have changed the whole dynamic of the tour. Um, I think they had a very experienced pack 
And I think they would have changed their pack after that, which would have been to our benefit because that pack then came through in the other matches. The second and third tests, again, as you say, were very close. And I think on the fourth test, I think uh, our minds were heading home before before the game. And I think that always that, that was shown in the score. But, you know, it it, it successful turn in, 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 in many ways. And as I say, it's fine margins at that level. And just one simple opportunity missed it meant the difference between winning and losing. And it also meant the difference between the way the, the tour went and, and, and didn't go. But yeah, know, the, the, I presume everything I've heard about touring New Zealand and I've spoken to various people at various stages going right back to, you know, Ronnie Dawson and uh, tour of 55. I'm hoping to speak to somebody from uh, about the 1950 tour. Everybody has said the same thing that New Zealanders, they, they would love people going down to play rugby, obviously. Um, but that they kind of, it's a hard world. They either really rate you or, or you're kind of nobody. Is that correct? Oh yeah. They, they can be, they can be brutal, uh, but you can get the respect too. And, and, you know, they, I think they, they set the terms of that relationship. And so as long as you not match those terms, then they, they do respect you. And I think we learned that very quickly. And, and so we did, you certainly don't complain about things. Um, and you just give as good as you get. I think it's your opportunity to train as a professional as well in sport because it was amateur in those days, which some of your uh, viewers and listeners might not remember. Um, and for us, it was an opportunity to go out there and actually be professional for, for 10 weeks. And so your fitness levels went up. I came back a stone heavier and faster and stronger. And it shows the difference between, and I did train hard even when here, but it shows the difference when you actually get time to to apply it. And that kind of hardness of of having to step up to the plate, and I mean, I know you 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 would have done that during your rugby career generally, but isn't there a time in in somebody's sporting life when you get to the very top end of it that yeah. and you know it's you're you're up against it against the best. You really find out who people are, don't you? You do, you do. You see the people that are able to rise to the occasion and, and some aren't. And, and that's sport right across the board. Um, and it's, but it's, it, you learn an awful lot from, from going there. Uh, and the skill levels that they develop at a very young age, the skill levels are right through the whole 15 of the team. They're all expected to pass, handle the ball and run. Uh, the fitness levels that they, they have. And so I think those of us who are a bit younger on the tour, we came back certainly having learned a great deal and we applied that then from then on in our, in our, in our own sporting careers. Well, the thing that I found when I was growing up playing rugby, and obviously I, I can, I have to tell you right now, um, I played, I stopped in 1983, <laughs> just around the time you were in New Zealand, actually. Um, uh, but the one thing I noticed about growing, growing up playing rugby certainly in where I was in school, was that any kind of notion of 15-man handling or anything remotely approaching it was not really welcome. Now, the question I don't understand is how were the Southern Hemisphere teams, or well, particularly New Zealand at that time, how were they so far ahead? We still played the same game, but they seem to have a much, much bigger understanding of it. But I think if you go back to the 71 74 teams, and you watch their games. Their the, the handling skills were superb, and in, in those matches from the Lions, um, and I think that the, what I certainly came back with was realizing that what they do from a very early age is is they develop their skills, and so they all have the qualities and the skills necessary to play whatever type of game they decide to play, and then it's having the confidence and being released to play that side of, sort of game. So in some ways, we brought that into the eighty five Irish team that went on to win the Triple Crown. That, yes, uh, yeah. and, you know, and um, and that was a team, it was full of running, full of skills, and it needed the inspiration. That inspiration came from our coach, the late Mick Doyle, who just freed us up mentally and said, right, guys, you've all got this, the abilities, now go out and, and, and do your stuff. And that's it's what that team did. It's quite interesting, Trevor, because, you know, when you look back, I remember those, those I'm, I'm 58 years of age, or just a few years uh, older than you, actually. <laughs> um uh, when you look back at some of those those seasons, 81 was a whitewash for us. 82, we won the Triple Crown. 83, shared the championship. 84 yeah. was a whitewash. 
and eighty five we we did the cripple try and won the 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 or shared the championship. So it was a kind of a bit of a mixed a, a bit of a roller coaster ride. Why do you think that was? And what did when you talk about McDoyle, I remember the mantra at the time was that McDoyle is going to play running rugby and he did and so on. So so how, how why were there such fluctuations, Trevor? Well, I think it just is it's the players that were available at the time that the, the 82 team came together over a period of years and had uh, Willie Duggan, Moss Keane, Fergus Slattery, uh, John O'Driscoll, Ollie Campbell was there at the time. And that team had been together for some period of time. They had toured together and they're under the, the coach coaching of Tom Kiernan. Mm-hmm. And and so a couple of us came onto the team in, in 1981 uh, Don Lennon and, and myself, Michael Kiernan, came on when Davy Irwin got injured um, in, in that 82. And between that influx of new players and the experience of those old players, it came together at the right time to to win the Triple Crown in 82 and, and then go on to share the championship in, or win the, win the championship, I think, in 1983. And then 84, that team, some of those players were just getting that bit older. And... And so it was a it was a sort of a transition period. Eighty four uh, was the Willie John McBride was the the coach at the time, wasn't he? Yeah, it wasn't really Willie John McBride. I think it would be better to say it was a transition period where that group of players became that yeah. wee bit older, and and then in came a new group of players that had been playing away at provincial level and at university level. A lot of us went through Irish universities as well. And that group of young players came in, Brian Spillane, Nigel Carr, who was with me at Queen's yeah. University, um, Phil Matthews and uh, Jimmy McCoy and, and you know, you had Willie Anderson as well. And uh, and so that group of players came together, you know, Keith Cross and myself in the wings, uh, Brendan Mullen and Michael Kiernan. And Paul Pace in there. Bradley. You know, so, so it's a... You, you had the experienced team coming together in 82 and 83, getting a wee bit older, some of the players, and then a new influx of players. And that's why we had the success in, in 85. And Mick Doyle brought, gave that team the confidence to play in the way that it did. And then 86, I always say that it was fine margins again, I think in three of the matches we were leading at half time, And so for a variety of reasons, you know, we, we didn't win those games. But that team continued... Um, it probably didn't achieve to the full extent of what it could, but but it 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 certainly tried to play a nice style of rugby. Sponsored by Expressway. With My Expressway, free travel pass holders can reserve their seats online at expressway.ie or at our ticket machines in stations. Are you interested in trying a new smartphone, but still a little unsure? Do you want a phone that offers larger icons with louder sound and an interface that has technology designed for seniors? Well, why not choose from the Doro range by simply visiting doro.ie. Doro, make friends with innovation. I think the first game was away to Scotland, as far as I can remember, in 85. That's right. That's right. And, and Ireland scored, uh, was it Keith Crossan scored in the corner? Um, oh, to Brendan Mullen, I'm, I can't remember. It was, it was it was a really good try with very quick ball. Yeah, um, I'm trying to remember myself, but we started at the very start of that match. The ball was flashed down the, the line, and Keith Crossan made a break and he passed it to Hugo McNeil, and Hugo was caught just a yard short of the line. And for the rest of the season, he was made to watch that 40 meter run that he had in, and how. He, we kept encouraging, encouraging, and then it was always a disappointment because he got tackled right on the line. But uh, but the match went on, and he had to take the stick. Um, and the match went on. We continued playing that style of rugby. The Scots were a good side, and mm-hmm. people forget well, that. Well, they'd won the Grand Slam the previous year, hadn't they? Yeah, and they 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 actually were very close to 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 winning winning our match as well. So it was again fine margins, uh, but we stuck at it and. And we came up with a try at the end that really involved the whole team. And with Hugo Magnet giving me a pass for me to score. Uh, but all I had to do was really catch it and touch it down. But, you know, it, for me, the, the beauty of that time was playing the style that we wanted to play and succeeding playing it. And and then when we took on the French, um, we, 
we matched them in the way that they play because they were always tremendously good at moving the ball and, and playing the open style of rugby that you just sat back and admired them even though you're playing against them. I, so many times in Paris, I just thought that was brilliant, but didn't enjoy I have it. heard that line um, from so many uh, players and, and, and top players about other brilliant players. And yeah. they go there on the pitch with them. <laughs> They're almost forgetting they actually have to play them. Yeah. Uh, must be a strange one, that. <laughs> no, no, it's it's great to play against some of these players. And I always say that one of my f- first matches for for Queen's University was against Palomina. And the great Willie John McBride was playing on the other side. And I thought, isn't that tremendous? Here I am playing against my schoolboy hero. And halfway through the game, I remember thinking, why is my schoolboy hero trying to pull my head off my shoulders? <laughs> well, um, what about the, the uh, I'm not really into numerology, but what about the letters 999? <laughs> oh, <laughs> we, we didn't go into that detail, but uh, they certainly, yeah. they, they matched them in, in South Africa. Um, and uh, Well, he's a hero of mine for that for that reason alone, because his descriptions <laughs> of 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 what happened to um, individuals in previous uh, Lions tours against South Africa and so on and so forth. And I know this is slightly off piece, but it, but but I just thought, you know what? Fair enough. He knows exactly what's coming. So so I find the fact that the South Africans were really these tough South African men were shocked at all. I find that hard to believe. But nonetheless, he's a hero of mine, uh, Willie John McBride, for that oh, reason alone. He is tremendous in all he has done. He's been fantastic. But um, can I ask you the eighty-two team, um, which was one of the Triple Crown for the first time since, uh, since I think it was was it forty forty-eight? The Jack Kyle team. Um, there was a lot of pressure on that team to win, and not quite as expansive a team. Uh, Ollie Campbell, obviously brilliant uh, yeah. at half, but but he he got a lot of our kicks. What was the game plan in the eighty-two team? Do you think? Well, I think it it was based around the experience of of the pack in particular and Ollie Campbell, um, and you keep the pressure on the opposition and to match them physically up front, and then you had the brilliance in some of the games of Ollie, uh, where he just pulled tries out of nowhere, and um, but it was it was the maturity of the side, the experience, the physicality, great players, uh, Willie Duggan, Moss Keane, and. Uh, you had Phil Orr in there as, as well. And and then there was the leadership of, of Kieran Fitzgerald. And, you know, that, that you know, he was there in the 85 team as well, bringing that consistency of leadership right the way through. Um, so I think it was just adding an influx of, of, of some younger players and that maturity that was in that side, the experience that they had um, that, that just, or fruit and Tom Kieran, of course, having a tremendous influence as well. And then um, you played in the inaugural World Cup in '87. I did, yeah. And now my understanding of that is, well, obviously the World Cup was an uh, inaugural World Cup, but it wasn't nearly as 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 big a razzmatazz as such as, as it is now. There wasn't a huge amount of training for you before that World Cup, was there? Well, we we trained hard. Now we, we trained hard and. and you know, as amateurs, we you know I train seven days a week, sometimes twice a day, um, and so so we were fit enough. But what what we did, and and it's with hindsight, everything can look better with hindsight, because we didn't play matches, so we were fit enough, but we didn't have the match the match experience at the time. And why and the didn't the IRFU want you to play matches, or was there a sense that this World Cup wasn't? as much of a, a, a big thing to them or what was the attitude do you think no no i think i think it was my take on it would be it was actually about it, injuries to try and avoid injuries before you go to the world cup and and i think it's again looking back with hindsight it's worth reflecting on it and saying that you're better to take the risk with playing matches of injury uh, and go out match fit than than not and so you know i can remember uh, you know, the guys, we'd all, we had trained regularly together and it certainly wasn't anything to do with fitness, but it was down to that that actual match experience, match fitness that, that we lacked. So you took a couple of games to get into your stride and by then the path had nearly been set for you. So, Yeah, uh, you got to the quarterfinals, didn't you, uh, that year? You got to the quarterfinals and lost against Australia. We were fairly well beaten by them. Um, 
which which was very disappointing. Uh, I certainly reflect back and don't think that we we showed what we could have done in the best light. Um, and so it was a learning experience. It was a, it was a disappointment uh, in in many respects. Uh, we just didn't feel we had shown our true potential. And but at the same time, it was the start of the World Cup. Um, but it was a change in the game as well. What, what I found was the World Cup didn't give you the same rewards as a tour, as a as an amateur. Um, it, it was a far more professional approach, and uh, the sort of the benefits of touring was you, you took a professional approach to your training and your playing, but you also ensured you enjoyed the place that you were visiting as well. In the World Cup, it was very much just about about the, the rugby. Um, Okay, so it was a kind of a, a, a taste, a, a taste of professionalism in a kind of a way, or it was, yeah, it was mentality, yeah. And I think it was well, a change in dynamic. If those other rewards aren't there, then then money comes into it, and I think that's what eventually happened in the game. You know, the, the, um, the demands were there without the sort of the the amateur rewards, if that makes sense. Um, sure. Well, it sounds to me, Trevor, and I've heard this a lot, a lot about you know, I, I knew Robbie McGrath by the way when we were growing up. Yeah. I, I realized even then at the you know at the age of seven in 1972 that uh he was a hard man and he worked very hard and he trained yeah. very hard we used to play soccer with him in, in their back garden uh, and there was no messing he he wasn't on for any people crying and going off and watching star trek you know it was you get out there and, and you play and i get the feeling from you you said sometimes you train seven days a week twice a day so we're effectively you were bringing a professional mentality to what was an amateur game in your training. Yeah, but I think that was always way back. You go back to the likes of Mike Gibson, who played, and Ollie Campbell. They did apply a sort of a professional mentality to to the amateur game um, within the constraints that you had to do your day job as well, which was a lovely balance to your life in some ways, that you, you enjoyed the sport that you were playing, you trained hard, but you also had this other life out, outside of rugby. Um and you know, we had the Ulster team that came through the Jimmy Davidson influence, where he brought in a certain um, you know direction about how to train. But I think also you get it's an individual players that, that I think players individually the teams that succeed are teams of friends first and foremost, teams that set their own standards high as individuals, and then in setting their own standards high, they 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 then uh, demand of those around them to to come up to those as well and. And those are the successful teams that I played on, the Ulster team, the Queen's University, uh, the Irish team and of 82 and 83 and in 85 as well. And um, and I think there's a lesson for that even in current sport, that, that players that take ownership, players that say, I'll do it, rather than look around for others to do it. Well, I've always had the feeling, um, you know, watching Irish rugby, uh, and, and certainly back in those days when I used to go to all the games in the 70s and the 80s, um, that there was a good camaraderie. There was a good sense of it, you know, even when Ireland lost. There was a very good uh, kind of strong ethos, um, collegiate e attitude between the players and a sense of enjoyment and belonging. Um, do you think, in some ways, that in in the modern game or in the in the professional game, that some of that has been lost, particularly at club level? I I think it could certainly one of the things uh, I've come back in recent years at Queen's University and the Irish Universities, and I was honoured to be president of the Irish Universities for two years. And the one thing that struck me was coming back into the game, having been away from it for a while, was the failure of players to mix after the games. And Keith Crossan always says there should be a rule in not just in rugby, but in sport in general, that you have to buy your opposite number a drink after the game. And whether it be a pint of beer or a pint of orange juice, it still is that half hour that you spend with those people. You create a bond forever. And I remember walking into a room in a hotel a number of years ago in just outside Belfast, and there were 400 people at the dinner and that, that I was going to. And everybody in that room knew everybody else. And that was solely through the connections that they had built through through sport. And one of the things we we're trying to encourage in Irish universities is for the, the young students, you know, if Queens are playing Trinity or UCC, which we still have the Dudley Cup, which is the Varsity Cup, um, then we try and get those players to mix. But even in the All-Ireland League, that we get the players to try and 
have your dinner, have your meal with the other team before you get in the bus, have a one drink because you, you'll create that friendship forever. Like a recent example was a young Cork solicitor ringing me uh, in Belfast uh, about work and her opening line to me was, uh, she said, uh, my boss wants to know, are you now one of those rugby wingers that looks like a prop? And my response was, without asking who she was, what firm she was from, or who her boss was, I said, you tell your boss for me that he was a hooker that always looked like a prop. That was Paul Durham, who played for Munster and, and all. And, you know, Paul and I, we played in the Irish universities together. We mixed in the interprovincials. And, you know, they're 30-odd 30, 30 years. I haven't seen him in years, uh, but I immediately knew who would make such a comment. You know, so. um, I remember I talked to Mick Galway a while ago, and he said actually something about up in, up in the early days of his rugby career that he was up in Banamina. And uh, I think he was talking to, I think it was Sid Miller mm-hmm. um, and various others, and he was chatting away to them, and he said after the game, and he said that they said for the first, don't worry about the ball for the first 10 minutes of the game. And he says, may I add, it was the best piece of advice I ever got. <laughs> well, Sid, but, no. And Sid, Sid uh, I think people maybe in Ireland don't realise, but Sid is probably the greatest rugby person of all time. There is nobody will match what Sid gave to the game and, and, and did in the game. Uh, and Nobody across the world in rugby will ever match what Sid Miller did in the game. Really? Uh, to, really? To no. As a player, mm. as an administrator, mm. there is nobody can match his what he gave to the game over the, over the years. And and he was the wisest words of counsel, uh, given in a very direct way. But uh, but as Mick Galway saw, um, but usually got to the nub of things very quickly. But he's the greatest rugby person of all time. And I'm not sure in this island we fully appreciate we fully appreciate that. I think Willie Anderson said the same thing to me. He said that Jim Davidson was an incredible rugby thinker and and absolutely and utterly obsessed with the idea of being better and beating the All Blacks and yeah. would even on the tarmac in a, in an airport would be formulating some rugby moves. No, he went, he went out, to, I think they were touring in 76 and he was a sub and he had this feeling that he was going to be, he was going to be brought out. And so he, he slept New Zealand time here in, in, in Ulster and, and then he was called out. Somebody got injured and he was called out and apparently he got off the, the plane in, in Singapore and trained in the tarmac. Uh, and then got back on the plane, you know, so. I, I mean, that's hardcore. That's proper. Trevor, can I ask you, you know, your own um, upbringing, uh, you you went to Lauren Grammar School and yeah. you lived, were you, was your dad an RUC man? Is that right? He was, yeah, that's right. Um, and so you were living in East Belfast growing up and what, into a family of, of sports loving people and stuff and... Yeah, no, my father, he played, he actually played, um, he played hockey for Ulster schools. And my grandfather um, was probably, you know, he was a police officer as well. And he seemed to do more playing sport than he did of policing at the time. But he did a lot of athletics and he used to run in the Catholic parish sports at the weekends and earn more money in in those athletic games than he did as a police officer during the week. And sort of, if you want to sprint, they put you back a yard for the next week's sprints, those sort of things. Um, and then my father, um, he was a police officer. And as I said, he played hockey and other sports. And we lived as a family in, in West Belfast, which people who know the area up here might find strange. But in the 1960s, we lived in West Belfast. And then he was promoted to be a sergeant. We moved to the Glens of Antrim. And then ultimately ended up in Larne, um, where he lived, where we lived, and and he travelled all around the time, uh, all around the place as as a police officer. And we left West Belfast before the troubles broke out. Uh, but within a year of us leaving, we couldn't have lived there anymore. So, and that was that when you were growing up as a young man, as a teenager, really, uh, was that something that was very worrying to you to have a dad who was potentially in line? Um, uh, for some 
aggressive treatment. Um, did that kind of stuff worry you, or did you did it not really enter your head? No, well, you, I think you just lived with it, and it, it was it was normal. It, you know, if some of your listeners understand, the most dangerous place in the world to be a police officer in the early eighties was was Northern Ireland, mm. and if I was to say to you to to when you go into your car in the morning, you have to check under it first of all to see if there's a bomb under the car. Then as you go to work, somebody's trying to kill you. And when you come home, somebody's trying to kill you. And then you live with that for 30 years. So it either destroys you or you get your head around it. And so most of them got their head around it. But my father directly probably could have been killed about five times and indirectly a whole lot of other times. But he wasn't the exception. He was, that was, that, that was, uh, the normal for every police officer and, and the soldiers as well. And and the other thing is, you know, it's democracy struggles to deal with this type of violence that we had here from, from both sides. You knew who was going to commit the acts of violence, but you quite often couldn't do anything about it until they tried to commit it. And that included trying to kill police officers and soldiers who knew who they were. Um, but we, you know, as a people, while there were all these things that were happening, we're destroying relationships and, 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 and bringing the worst out in society, there was always the counter dynamic up here that we too often forget. Mm. And that's really the argument that won through in the end. And you had the peace people, for example, um, where people from right across the board, the Shankill and the Falls came together. And you had sports like rugby and other All-Ireland sports working away and keeping those relationships going. And... Um, you know, it's a strange thing. A hundred years ago, when Ireland was partitioning, the Irish rugby team was still playing and was fourth in the in the Five Nations Championship. So, you know, it's it's so it's it's one of those things I've always looked at and said, if you want to do relationships differently, there's plenty of ways of doing it. And I've said that to some of the guys that I've met through various things I've been involved in who were pulling the triggers. I've said, buy me a pint again, this guy's me to talk about it, but don't shoot me, you know. So. Yeah, I mean, I, I was certainly going to get to it, maybe not quite so soon, in, but I'll, I'll get to it anyway. You have done, and some people might be aware of this, um, you've done a huge amount of work in sort of, uh, you know, as they say, inter-religious unity through sports. I got that off, I got that online. It doesn't thoroughly cover it, though, because what you are really doing is building relationships in ways that are, you know, most people uh, from the outside certainly would think that's not really possible, including, I read, isn't there a school in, in East Belfast that wants, wanted to play hurling? Yes, there's. that's right, in, in Beaver Estate. And my friend, the late Billy Tate, who was the, 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 um, the headmaster at that time, and Billy was, was, I think, a former part-time member of the, the Ulster Defence Regiment, which Royal Irish Regiment of the Army. Um, but, but the kids said to him, sir, what's that strange game? We see them playing. And he said, that's hurling. And they said, well, sir, could we have a go? So this is the middle of a big, um, estate in, 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 in South Belfast at the time. And, um, so Billy contacted a friend he knew who came together and they and the GAA and they introduced the kids to hurling and he got a lot of stick and on social media you could see some of the vile that was being fired at him and and I rang him and I said Billy who was a big man I said Billy um do you need any help here because I see some of the comments that are being made and he says don't you worry Trevor he says I've spoken to the right people and basically he had spoken to to some of the loyalist paramilitaries and they said, no problem, we'll support you. And some of that work probably came through the work of Martin McAleese, Mary McAleese's husband, who worked with the loyalist paramilitaries and the likes of Jackie MacDonald. And and they recognise, which I've found with a lot of the paramilitaries over the years, that what they went through, they certainly don't want their children to go through. And so they are prepared to do an awful lot of things that people previously would have found surprising. And Billy even arranged for Mary McAleese, who was good enough to, to come and visit the school. And all the locals were there. I think there was one plain clothes, close protection guy outside the school. And she went around, met everybody in the school and and then left having, having been well received and also 
you know, speaking exceptionally well. And Billy went into the kids and said, well, kids, what do you think? And one of them put their hands up and he pointed and said, and we kids said, sir, that queen was lovely. So, so, you know, it's, it's the fact that I think the thing that gives you hope for the future is that where leadership is given on some of these issues, people respond and they're looking for it. So despite some of the negatives, we are good people. Um, maybe just we've lacked some of the leadership that we should have would be better having and, and got into a mess. I think that we shouldn't have got into, you know, Trevor, can I ask, did, have you had any pushback with that? I, I mean, people who kind of weren't comfortable with you making those sorts of, um, you know, cross community connections. Um, over the years, very little, no, um, really very little. Um, generally I felt it's, it's well responded to As I said, that, 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 you know, I've talked to the guys pulling pulling the triggers on both sides, and and I remember meeting with a group of former Republican prisoners, and the first comment to me was, "Did Ireland do well against Australia on Saturday?" After Ireland, I think beat Australia in a match, and so there was a group of us meeting with them, and and the discussion went on from there. He was an Arsenal fan. But he murdered somebody when he was 18. So somebody at 18 could have gone into his hand and said, go and kill that person. And in doing that, he blighted his own life, but he also blighted the life of the family of the, you know, the person who was murdered. And, um, but also looked at it, he spent 18 years in prison. And if you look at the 18 years that I was developing from 18 to 30 to 36, you know, I played rugby for Ireland. I got a degree. I got married. I had kids. I developed my career. And and he his life was blighted because somebody, an ideology, could have gone in his hand and said, you should kill somebody to drive the British into the sea. And, and it was funny, during those meetings, we had various discussions. As I said earlier, I said to him, look, if you want to unite Ireland, buy me a pint of Guinness and we'll talk about it, but don't shoot me. Um, and uh, But the atmosphere was reasonably frosty, as you might imagine. But then somebody said, what do we want for our children? And it just broke the, it broke the atmosphere because nobody wanted their children to go through what these guys had gone through or, or others that we knew. And that was the same at a lot of these meetings. And it's funny, it only changed, the atmosphere only changed back again when some of the ideologues came into the room for one of the meetings. And that was interesting that we allow these ideologies to tie us to the past, to chain us to the past, and it, it stops us from really freeing up the future. And and I don't mean that, you know, I have a very clear view on the constitutional position, but I also am very comfortable on this island. I sort of use the mantra of... of, of uh, happily separate but love getting together and and rugby is just a really good example of that and i constantly say just build relationships and it'll go wherever it goes future generations will take it where it goes but um it'll be based on the, the fact that we have a relationship that thing of buying a pint to your opposite number when you're playing in an all-iron competition those are sort of things those relationships are being built and people don't realize and and particularly with getting into politics too much, but the political world don't realise that most of us have worked out a relationship in this island that 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 is quite effective in a, in a whole lot of ways. Um, and whether it's through business, through friendships, my nephew works in Galway, um, and through sports, through through all sorts of connections, and even between these islands, you know, my brother-in-law was president of supper something called the upper gastrointestinal group of surgeons of great britain and ireland and there's all those bodies that exist the rnli you know protect all our shores and save all of us at different times so it's those are the sort of things that we we should be more confident in that that is the way forward and rugby to me was one really really good example of it and um you know my father was a policeman you know, we travelled the length and breadth of this island and we never had a bad experience, uh, always welcomed. You know, even the fact that Willie Duggan, who I played with in 1982, um, both of us were picked to play in a Barbarian game in, in Cardiff and the match was called off. So we had to book into a hotel in London and there, there I was mistaken for his son, and <laughs> which he found very hard to take. So it was always a bit of crack between him and my dad. And uh, even years later, we ended up doing a radio interview in RT Studios and he was there and I'd brought my, my son with me. And I said to my son, 
introduced him and I said, this is the grandfather that, that hasn't written to you, hasn't remembered one of your birthdays, hasn't sent you a Christmas card, you haven't had a single present from him. I said, what sort of a grandfather is that? And what was funny was, and I think his, his wife Ellen must have had it, some input, was his next birthday, he got a present from Willie Duggan, um, which says an awful lot about the man. And, and those are sort of people in our game, you know. So. Well, I remember the the Willie Duggan line, as I'm sure you do. Sure, if it wasn't for the booze and the fags, I'd be so fast, I'd be offside all day long, you know. Uh, and and of course, people people forget that in actual fact, you know, this wasn't just the, these guys who enjoyed a drink and all that. This wasn't just some. They weren't just you know individuals who like booze and and occasionally showing up to rugby. They were hugely committed men who liked who played rugby with a with a huge intensity and possibly yeah. did a few other things with a big intensity too. Yeah. No, they, they were they were they were they were all solid individuals, you know, and uh we enjoyed the competition, um, but we enjoyed the aftermath and, and that's what sport can do. You know, you it, it teaches you how to hate without actually hating. It it teaches you how to compete without destroying a relationship. And the thing about sport as well is if you throw a young person at any sports coach, no matter what sport it is, he will see it as his duty to try and bring the best out in that child and help them develop both as a sports person but also as an individual. And we talk about tours and things like that. Throughout all this, you're developing as a person as, as well. Um, and, and that's why sport, I think, just as... Uh, you know, has has a very positive role to play. Yes, there are sometimes negatives, but but if you weigh that up against the very positives that that, that emanate from it, then then it's 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 way ahead. Trevor, I, I know you were in you were you were in the uh, in the UUP, and yeah. um, is it difficult in any way to sell? I hate using that word, but you know what I mean to sell some of your very progressive ideas and so on to some people. I think I think that's always a challenge, but I think the question is, well, what are you offering? What are you suggesting? <laughs> and you know, if you're if you're trying to unite Ireland, you don't blow people to bits. If you're trying to make people feel that the United Kingdom is a place for you and Northern Ireland is a place for you, you don't shoot them. And you know, that's fairly basic stuff. And the fact that it took some people so long to actually get their heads around that, when most of the rest of us were 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 getting on fine. Well, isn't that what they said that yeah, Good Friday was kind of Sunningdale for slow learners and all that? Um, yeah, but it, it was a wee bit on both sides, you know. It, 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 it's and the agreement created a framework. It created a framework of a Northern Ireland for all to be promoted, great relations across the island and and between these islands and beyond. And and it's a solid framework. And you know, we're we're getting there. Northern Ireland is a far better place than it was twenty-five years ago or when I was growing up. You know, I talked to you through what the daily life of a police officer started with a threat and and continued throughout the day. And we live with that in a very abnormal way. And it's divided up our society, so we have to try and break those barriers down. Um, and a lot of kids are doing that. And for a lot of our young people now, they're not as defined as by the old labels as the extremes like to box them into. And and so, sure. you know, and there's plenty of examples of, you know, of how we're doing that. And what's the true character of people? The example I use is, is the Dean of Belfast has a wooden barrel outside his church in the St. Anne's Cathedral in the centre of Belfast two weeks before every Christmas. And for two weeks in 2003, he kept that wooden barrel there and, and £120,000 was put in, which money goes towards various charities in Belfast. And then on Boxing Day, the tsunami happened in the Indian Ocean. And he decided as his gesture to keep the barrel there for another two weeks. And £1.2 million was put into that barrel. And that's just from people of Belfast over the next two weeks. There were actually queues of people. And so... Time and again, there are examples of that. If you want to tackle sectarianism, the Northern Ireland football fans did it. And they did it by looking in the mirror. They said, we need to change. You know, we're horrendous. We're destroying the game we love and we need to change. And, you know, at the Euros, the, the Northern Ireland fans, the Republic of Ireland fans were jointly award, got the award of the best fans. And and they transformed the atmosphere at Windsor Park. Um, and And... 
you know, they showed that with leadership that came from a couple of people like Michael Boyd and Jim Rennie and others, um, with the support of the Irish Football Association, they were able to transform the very nature of the place. And you went from a crowd of 6,000 at a World Cup qualifier to 20,000 and 10,000 more wanting tickets. So, you know, all these things, there are examples of how we can meet these problems. Um, but some people want to keep us in their trenches and that's yes. a constant well, challenge. Yeah. Well, life is a constant negotiation in every respect, and, and pretty much, as you say, people are left to their own devices. Really, that's what they'll. Most people, that's what they'll do. I mean, you seem sound to me, Trevor, like you. You know, and it's, it, I hate to use the word brave because it it, sound, it makes it makes you sound like a guy who's gone into a, a tackle in rugby. But you sound to me like you've got very good leadership ideas. I mean. Do, do you, could you could you see yourself taking an even more high profile role because you've you've got a very good way about you for want of for want of more eloquent words uh, no I, I I don't see myself take, taking that, that any more role than, than I suppose what than what I what I do um and but I'll continue arguing away at the various points that I make and continue talking to people and we're given an opportunity, we'll, we'll, we'll express it. Um, but there are plenty of others doing it as well. Hugo McNeil, my good friend who played with me in the Irish rugby team, you know, he has done tremendous work over the years, uh, British and Irish relations, relations up here. He's always been very supportive. Um, and there are many others doing similar type work. And I, I think, you know, while you, you hear about the extremes, the, you, what people don't hear about just so much, because it, it's, it's, you know, we bring kids together at a meeting. If we brought them together to have a riot, we'd have the media there. We bring them together to play sport, rugby, football, and Gaelic through Peace Players International, who work under the, the motto of those who play together can, can learn to live together. And we work on the interfaces in Belfast. So both sets of paramilitaries allow them to play what we call basketball is the main sport we use, but we also use in the summertime the game of three halves, rugby, football, and Gaelic. And so you have lawyers accepting their kids to play Gaelic sports, um, which, you know, it, they're given the opportunity and they support it and they support that change. Because as one of them said to me, he said, I don't want my kids to go through what I went through. Um, so there's a lot of people doing it. I just do my bit where I can, when I can. And I have a very supportive wife. Um, who has had to put up with an awful lot over the years, uh, but has been brilliant. Um, but you, you just influence what you can. And I think it's important that everybody who has the opportunity to do that does it. So you look at what the Northern football fans do and you look at the relations that the All-Ireland sports just do very naturally. Um, and and even the British and Irish Lions does as well. And, you know, we've Roy McElroy in the Ryder Cup um, competing for us, you know, and, and Rory wants to recommend, re represent everybody on this island. You know, he's, he's a tremendous ambassador for all of us. I think we have a, an identity here which we can mix and match. I have behind me a, a photo or painting of the Ulster report John Hewitt and a, a modern version of how he described identity in a debate that he took part in in the Irish Times in 1972, I think, was he, and this is, is a sort of a version of it rather than the actual words, but he's described himself, I'm a Belfast man, I'm an Ulsterman, I'm Irish and I'm British and those are interchangeable and I'm European and anyone who takes away any one part of me demeans me as a person. And and we add that into that, the, the, the whole mixture of people who've come to Ireland, North and South to make this place their home. And the key is that we make it inclusive and we include them. And in the Irish sense, that means also being British and Irish, and in Northern Ireland we can accommodate that. Um, and a Seamus Heaney quote also is that two buckets easier carried than one. I stand in between, and maybe that's Northern Ireland's position, because we had this influx four hundred years ago of people who are Ulster Scots by and large, mm -hmm. and that cultural influence that it brought to bear here, and and it's make, getting that mix, which most of us can do quite comfortably between the Gaelic and the Celt and the Ulster Scots and and the others. And and bringing that forward to where we are now, I think people are grasping the new opportunity that we've had to um, to actually make this place work and realise. I think Seamus Mallon, he gave us all on his death, he gave us all a, a sort of a present as before he left of, of a shared home place. 
And that shared home place can be Northern Ireland. It can be Ulster in the nine county sense. It can be Ireland as a whole, and it can be these islands. In, and it's it's you know, I, I once had in one hand a young guy who a young person who'd lost his mother, father and sister in the Shankill bomb, which was carried out by the Republican movement. And in retaliation, the loyalists shot up a a bar and killed this other young fellow's brother. And and I think the challenge to me for the people of Ireland going forward is we need to face up to our hatreds a bit better, and it can be done because we do it on a regular basis. And we need to value each other's children as if they are our own. And it just doesn't apply here. It applies elsewhere too. And, you know, it's in some ways the the most significant event of the last century was was the Christmas truce on the Western Front mm. in 1914. And one of the things they did on that occasion was they played football together. And the big mistake those soldiers made was listen to their leaders and get back into their trenches because mm. they'd found out that they have a, actually have a good relationship. So... The key thing is that things like rugby and all these other bodies that exist, and there there are over 200 bodies exist, they're all about building relationships. The business connections, most of us can work it out. And if it moves from a really good friendship to a marriage at some stage in the future, then that's for future generations, as I said, to determine. But what we can do is create a basis in which change either does or does not happen. You know, I have, I have three English nephews and three English nieces, um, most of the girls support Ireland in the rugby, and most of the boys support England. I have a Scottish nephew and niece, and as I said, I've got another nephew who's who's working down in Galway. So, you know, that's that's probably reflects quite a number of people across these islands. And in, in Ireland, it, it certainly does. Well, it, it's a very familiar um, representation of, of of what it is to be Irish, I suppose. Trevor, I know you've got to go soon. Uh, I've got one final question for you, and it's really just a personal question about about your rugby days. You know, what was what was your greatest moment in any match that you played? What what moment do you think about when you can't sleep? Is there any, and you go, "Wow, that was great." Oh, that, that is a hard one. I um, I think you know probably the, the first match where I ran out onto the pitch and Davy Irwin said to me he said Trevor uh, go out fourth he says because the noise is at its greatest then and I think the run out in the Irish jersey where you were made to be welcomed and cheered on um, is is the way forward for this island um, and the second time was standing on the pitch with my those young kids I talked about in my hands and I said what what could we do to to make sure it never happens again. And rugby's one good example of it. Well, Trevor, I, I, I really admired you as a player. You're a great player. I think everyone did, really. Um, and I must say, I hugely admire the work that you're doing as well. So thank you. Thank you for everything. And thank you for speaking to me. Thanks very much, Gary. Cheers. All right. See you then. Bye-bye. All the best. Goodbye. And will phone poke a newowet, and will knappy no foom nis orjoet. Nis eskalehusod, faker na phone eintokatal gwin, on show, egg daro. And von klishte is dani, gidi gohon la hai glina, agus taskina. Tarod egen, gogachtina. Tanismo olis, egg, daro.com.